Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 19 as we continue our thematic study here of Revelation. Now, I said kind of in the introduction there in the scripture I read that we're comparing this idea this morning in, in Revelation 19. John is making a contrast between a wedding invitation and really kind of a summons to judgment, or actually there's actually another banquet in there that he's contrasting. We'll look at that in a second. And uh, so, you know, for most of you, that was pretty easy, wedding invitation or, or summons. Yeah, I get it, Dave. Uh, but, you know, some of you, men, maybe, you're still maybe wrestling with it a little bit. Uh, wedding invitation. I know I struggle with that a little bit, just to be honest, sometimes. I mean, that's a whole Saturday, right? I mean, you know, sometimes we'll get a wedding invitation. It'll be some cousin we haven't seen in like three years. And I'll say, Janine, do we have to go to this? And she'll say, yes. Or I'll be some like former youth group kid of mine, and I'll say, do we really have to go to this? And she said, you're officiating, yeah. <laughs> and part of it is for me, part of it is, I'm, I'm teasing a little bit, part of it is for me, growing up in a Baptist church, weddings were pretty boring, really. Um, we, we would, uh, I remember weddings, you know, when I was, in high school and had some of the people in the church that were college-age friends, and some of my friends were getting married. The church that I went to at the time, you know, you'd have a wedding at 2 o'clock on a Saturday. And you would come to the church, and about 2.30 the wedding would actually start. And then afterwards, you would head into the fellowship hall for the reception. Now, fellowship hall and reception in the church that I grew up in, uh, first of all, there was really no food. There was little bowls of peanuts. And cocktail peanuts. If it was a fancy wedding, they had mixed nuts. That was a fancy wedding. And then they always had these, uh, I had to look them up. Some of you know what they are, but in the tool, they would have these little butter nuts. Those are those little foamy mints, you know, they just kind of dissolve in your mouth. If it was a fancy wedding, you'd have the Jordan almonds, little candy-covered almonds, you know. And so you had some mixed nuts, some punch with sherbet in it, Right? And, I mean, the only highlight of that was the cutting of the cake. And uh, so you got a little, you know, a little square of cake. And uh, they would throw the bouquet. Of course, this is a conservative church, so there was no garter throwing thing. That's, that was out. And, uh, you know, the guys, the friends would sneak out and let the air out of the guy's tires. You know, something like that. That was about the highlight of a wedding. And so Janine and I get engaged, and we start wedding planning. And her parents are talking about a meal. And I'm like, a What? You're going to feed these people? Do you know my family and friends? Like, this, no, there's going to, I mean, they were having a debate about wine. I said, no wine, no, 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 we're not giving these people drinks, you know? Cocktail peanuts. No, we're going to have, we're going to have a meal and a celebration. We'll be dancing. No, no dancing. Not allowed to do that kind of stuff. And so we had to make all these compromises. And it was, that was, it was an incredible event. I, enjoy, I enjoyed my wedding. In fact, I remember Maybe some of you remember this is a long time ago, but I remember my cheeks hurting at the end of the day. I, from smile, it was just like, I'm like, why does my face hurt? Because I, I don't smile enough. I never experienced that. So, so whatever wedding you have to imagine to put yourself in the right frame of mind, you have a wedding invitation that came. And then you've got the jury, or not the jury, the summons. This isn't just the summons. This is the They've got your picture. You going through the red light, you got your coffee in your hand, your bed head still, you're caught. 
And not only do you have the red light fine, but it's in a what? Construction zone. It's doubled. Now, honestly, which one do you want to receive? I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer. But in Revelation, what we're seeing is people aren't always picking the obvious pick here. And so your notes this morning, they're a little bit different, and I, there's, I wrestle sometimes. There's the teacher part of me and the preacher part of me, and we're, we're jumping a couple of chapters here to get to this idea of this final battle. And so let me just overview Revelation for you real quick um, as we go through. And, and here's the reason why I want to do this. I, I struggled. I was wrestling through the passage uh, this week, and what came to me really as a theme for this morning's sermon is just the glory of Christ. And as I thought about that, I said, Dave, that's been your theme several weeks. And I would argue it's one of the major themes of Revelation. The Christ's glory. This isn't about a, a roadmap of end times. This is about the glory of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, and just as a reminder of that, we have in chapter 1 this apocalypse, this revelation of Jesus. That's what this is. And chapter 1 gave us this beautiful, glorious picture of Jesus. And then in chapters 2 through 3, uh, we have these uh, Jesus and the seven churches. He's right in their midst. And we looked at all seven churches. And what's interesting here is what we saw is this, uh, this pattern. And uh, kind of comes up in here. Am I missing? There it is. Uh, we saw that the first church, Ephesus, and Laodicea were both having trouble with their love. One lost their first love. One was lukewarm. And then Samaria and Philadelphia... Uh, there was no reproof from them. They were both praised. And then we had these three churches in the middle, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, and Sardis. And there was this progression of giving in to false teaching. And in Pergamum, he says, you have some. And then in Thyatira, he says, you tolerate. And then in Sardis, you are dead. And so we have this progression. And I show this to you, and I, I, I put this all in, in the notes here because I was going to do it again. And... and we read this with such Western minds, but, but it's Eastern apocalyptic literature, and we have this type of poetry all through Revelation. And this is just the way Hebrew poetry often worked, and, and Mid-Eastern uh, poetry worked with these kind of triangles in, in the way that they kind of spelled things out, and they're trying to point to something. And there was another one in here, and I was going to put it in the notes, and then I'm like, you're becoming too much of a teacher, Dave. Um, Chapter 4, the glory of Christ, we saw Jesus on the throne, and Pastor Rich did that, and then Jesus, the lamb, and the lion. And so we see, again, who he is, and we have this picture now, we've gone from uh, Jesus revealed to Jesus with the seven churches, and then we were, were thrown up into heaven, and we see these, this beautiful picture of Jesus in heaven, and then from chapter 6 through 16, we have these sets of divine judgments. And, and when you think of judgments, what you think of is God zapping us for our wrong. But when we talked about the judgments, we looked at Isaiah 66, 15 through 18. And verse 18 says, For I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. At the heart of judgments is to see the glory of God. And so we looked at the seven seals in chapters, uh, chapter 6 uh, through 8, 4, and then we had this little sidetrack of the Lord's uh, uh, witness in there. 
And then we saw uh, in chapter 8, we didn't look at the seven trumpets. And then again, there's a little sidetrack with the two witnesses in chapter 11. And then there's this whole weird section, and we did look at this in 12 through 14, where there's just these kind of brackets here where it talks about the seven signs. And if you're reading through Revelation in this section, you look for the word sign or miracle. They're interchangeable, but there's seven of them. And, and they're, they're false miracles and these signs, but it tells the story of the woman and the dragon. It tells the story of the birth and death of Christ and the dragon pursuing the church. And then we looked at this battle that's going on in chapter 13 in the first and second beast and this unholy trinity that was revealed. In chapter 14, we have again the, the, Lord's, the Lamb's army. And then we have the final harvest. And there's a grain harvest of believers and a grape harvest of the unrighteous. And then we have the seven bowls. And between the sixth and seventh bowl, it says, and so here's we're in chapter 16, it, it begins to to set up this final battle. And it says, And they, being the nations of the world, assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. That probably is a name that, that means you've heard before. Uh, Armageddon. And just so you know, uh, Armageddon, right, is an event, uh, but mostly it's a place. It means the hill of Megiddo. Um, and in this spot of land... Uh, there's been more battles that have taken place, uh, probably of any other piece of real estate in the entire world. And it's just the meeting place of Egypt, the south, and the east, and the north all come into this area, and that's where so many battles have taken place. And so John, and Jesus in this revelation, might be using this figuratively, like here's a place where you know battles take place. Or it could be the place that the actual final battle takes place. Either way... He's mentioning this battle. So they're assembled in chapter 16, verse 6. And then in 17, um, we see the judgment of the great prostitute and the beast and the fall of Babylon in chapter 18. Uh, so you should be in your Bibles in Revelation 19. I want you to just kind of skip over one page to, to chapter 18. We have the far, fall of Babylon. And, um, and here's one of the points that I think that Revelation is making. And you can disagree with me here. Uh, modern scholars will, will take more of this view uh, than some of our older historics, although we see it all the way back from the very beginning, um, is the idea that Babylon, instead of being a specific place, um, represented Rome, and we see that in the Bible, no doubt, but that John's making a point of these, this, this, these are the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world become Babylon's. Uh, they, they overdo their power and their military and they're, they overrule, over and they don't rule God's way, and eventually every Babylon has to be resisted. And, and for the readers of Revelation, the first churches, they would have gone, yeah, we need to resist Rome. But he's writing in such a way that we could read it in our day and say, yeah, we need to resist, sorry, the United States. It's funny, if you read English commentators, they will say, oh, Babylon is Europe. Babylon is Iraq. Babylon is... You know, if you read scholars from other nations, you know who they describe Babylon being? Who's the one in power? Who's the one ruling? Who's the one with the military? So the United States is obviously Babylon. And so, it's just from your viewpoint. 
And so there's Babylon that needs to be resisted. And it's proclaimed by an angel in verses 1 through 3, and it's proclaimed by another voice. And then there's a call in verse 4, come out of her, my people, lest, lest you be taken by her sins. Hey, Christian, come out of that Babylon, lest you get swept up in it. And then there's a call to pay back. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Verse 6. So then we have the fall of Babylon in chapter 18. And look at verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city of Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, Silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented uh, um, wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. Notice John's comment on slavery in there that he put in there. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. All your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men and sailors and all whose trade is in the sea stood far off and cries out that they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like this great city? Do you see the, do you see the reaction of the world to the fall of Babylon? Or Babylon's? And what, and what they're saying here is this, and, and this is in your notes, the fall is mourned first by the kings of the earth because they lose their power. Babylon was where they got their power to rule. It's gone. You know, you know what doesn't fare very well when a kingdom comes to ruin? The last people in power. It doesn't bow well for them. Um, I've been reading through Jeremiah as part of our reading if you're doing the whole thing, and boy, it gets pretty grim there at the end. A lot of people are getting killed off. They mourn that their might that she gave is gone. The merchants of the earth, they're losing these possessions. These things, these wares, they're gone. I love the list in there. 
The reality is, almost everyone in here has at least one of those things in their home. Third, the traitors of the earth, they lost their position. They lost their their way of making a living. And, And what the fall of Babylon is showing is, hey, we don't always agree with it, but it's what butters the bread. We all just go along with it because we all have to. And John's asking you to look at this a little bit different. And so we have this rejoicing over the fall of Babylon that we'll pick up here in verse, in chapter 19, and then the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then we get to talk about the final battle today and the restoration in heaven in the two weeks, uh, next two weeks. So let's look at this final battle. Let's read all of Revelation chapter 19, and uh, we'll dig into the sermon today. That was the teacher part of me, Okay. I'd like to give you the big picture. Now, here's the preacher part of me. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. We just heard the mourning. Now we're hearing the rejoicing. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her grows up forever and ever. Do you see the contrast of their response versus the ruler's response and the merchant's response? It's just very night and day here. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. This has been a repeating uh, phrase in Revelation, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of the mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. You you just, you have to read the celebration and excitement and glory that is going on in Revelation chapter 19 because we just, from chapter 16, all the way through 17 have been dealing with judgment, seals, trumpets, bowls. And it's coming to completion. Here we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. For the end of verse 8, that for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, get up, knock it off. No, he said, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open. 
And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of his fury on the wrath of God the Almighty, and his robe On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Here's the other invitation to the next feast. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses, and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was standing on the horse, uh, uh, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Now, I'm getting ready for a battle scene as I'm reading this. You kind of have the picture here, don't you? I just want to make sure. Jesus on the horse. Okay, the armies of God, those who are followers of Jesus, dressed in white linen, on horses behind him. We are entering into battle, and I'm waiting for the battle, and here's all we get. And the beast was captured, and the false prophet who was in the presence had done the signs for which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. The two were thrown in to the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain. That's it, by the sword that came out of his mouth of him, who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorging, gorged with their flesh. Just kind of fast forwards a little bit. You know, sometimes when we picture judgment and we picture these scenes, it's, it's hard for us to see um, why Christ is being glorified in this. And so today I just want to just briefly talk about the glory of Christ in salvation, the glory of Christ because of His character, His actions, and the glory of Christ in his judgments. So first of all, it's, it's seen uh, in his salvation. And so in verses, uh, the first few verses here, we have this hallelujah chorus, which hallelujah, by the way, just because it, we use this term and then people forget, just means praise the Lord, okay? Um, and so, and it's really kind of almost a, an overview of where we're go, going. And I would say, here's the, here's the theme verse, the, the the purpose statement of all of chapter 19, right right here in verse 1. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to God. That's, that's, that, that is, there's the summary of Revelation chapter 19. That's what it's about. For his true uh, and just judgments, which includes here, I would say, the judgments of the righteous. It's, it's implied here, but not mentioned. How is it implied? Well, the righteous, are they're already clothed. The judgment has taken place, and they're found to be pure. They're, 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 they're given the garments that are mentioned in the seven churches. 
in the name of like they're 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 in glory. And so that judgment has taken place, and now we have the other judgment that is going to take place. For his true and just, he, we see his true and just judgments of this unholy trinity, uh, the, the prostitute and the, the uh, prophet and all this, we're going to see that. And for his true and just judgments on Babylon, and there's this call of praise. So here we have this marriage supper of the Lamb, and it's really mentioned kind of in different ways all throughout Scripture. Uh, and, and the emphasis here is that God reigns, right? And then we have this marriage supper has come. And from a Jewish perspective or an early Christian perspective, like this is what we're waiting for. We talk about heaven, you know, and hell. Um, but really the early church talked more about the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And again, this is a hard concept for me. It's like, okay, let's go get some cocktail peanuts. But it's, that's not the picture here, right? And in that culture, um, a, a wedding wasn't just a day. In that culture, a wedding would go several days. Can't imagine. Um, and, and it, you know, it would just, it would just, it would just the celebration would go until the celebration was over. And so here we have this, this incredible marriage supper, and we notice that the believer is called the bride of Christ, his church. Jesus is the groom, and the believers, us as a whole, are the bride. But at the same time, notice also that the believers are invited. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so you're both, however you want to picture it, you're either, you're both in the wedding and inviting to the wedding. It's just a, a metaphor that just has different angles to it. And because we're, we're the bride, we've made ourselves ready. Now, come on, right? I don't want to get any trouble here. But when we got ready for our wedding, Okay, one person in the couple took longer than the other person in getting ready. Um, I know this because me and the guys showed up kind of late because we're like, what's the big deal? And apparently there were some pictures that were supposed to be taken or something. I don't know. We were having fun. I don't know. We put a suit on. We, combed, we took a shower. What else do you want, right? But the idea of getting ready for a bride I mean, that's planned, and people help with it, right? It's, it's, and, you know, mom's involved, and friends are involved, and gosh, in this culture, there's makeup artists, and I mean, all this stuff is going on. We are pictured as a bride that is getting ready for her wedding day. And it, if we're sitting around, waiting for the marriage supper, and we're not getting ready, we're missing something. So the believer is clothed in this pure white linen, which is repeated in, uh, it's like the third time, chapter 7, verse 14, chapter 12, verse 14. And then there's this statement here at the end of of verse 8, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I just want to pause here for a moment. I wrestled with this verse because I want to shy away from saying, hey, you need to to be righteous. We have righteousness from Christ. But then when I swing the pendulum the other way, right, and it's just this righteousness we receive, well, then you're sitting around doing nothing. 
And so when when we think of this righteous deeds, they are done for us and they're done through us. There is a part in where we are preparing ourselves and yet God is doing it through His Spirit in us as we get ready for this marriage supper. There's different illustrations in Scripture. There's different places where Jesus uses this illustration and then he comes out and one of them, he comes out into the banquet. It's like, well, these people aren't wearing wedding clothes. Why? Why are you on your Saturday work in the yard clothes at this wedding? They said, well, we didn't have any wedding clothes. And Jesus says, get out. You don't, you don't show up not prepared for this wedding. And so as we give ourselves to Christ, Christ's righteousness is imputed. It's given to us. But it is something that we also cooperate with in becoming more like Christ. It's both. And I, I think that we can emphasize one over the other, but you, you have the bride has made herself ready. And yet, God is doing it. And so again, there's another call to write in verses 9 to 10. And so first of all, we have seen God's glory in his salvation. You're at the wedding feast. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But it doesn't stop there. And then in the next uh, section, we see this description of Jesus on the white horse. And... uh, you know, remember he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now he's, he's riding into earth on a horse. This is much more of a king and a warrior picture here. And uh, some commentators have pointed out that there were seven uh, character things mentioned and four action things mentioned in this passage. Several commentaries pointed it out, have kind of wrestled with it. And most commentaries agree it's not perfect on whether it's a character or an action. But we're just going to kind of go through this. This is how Jesus is described in this passage. First of all, he is faithful, sorry, he is faithful and true. This too is, it goes all the way back to chapter one, that Jesus is the faithful witness and we are called to be faithful witnesses. He is faithful and true. And I I think that too often we could kind of uh, maybe think those are kind of the same thing, Um, but somebody who is Uh, truth and is consistent in that truth over eternity. Both of those things, uh, it's good that he is true, but it's also good that he's faithful to us. It's good that he's faithful to us, but it's also good that he does that in truth, right? Both of these things are working together. He is faithful and true. Second, he's righteous. And specifically, if you look at verse 11 and the second part of it, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. We, we love to uh, describe war um, in different ways, and, and uh, whoever's on the winning side uh, will declare it a just war. Or if something is happening uh, that is to us and we need to go to war, our president will describe it in some terms where he will use terminology like this is a just, I want you to know this is a just fight. I don't want to tell you that there's only going to be one just war in all of history, and this is it. Now, you know, purely just. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not saying we can't defend ourselves as a nation. Please don't, you know, whatever. I know some of you are already angry, but listen. 
There's only one who's faithful and true, and there's only one that's completely just. And so he is righteous in his judgments and his making war. Third, he is omniscient, uh, which means is basically a big theological word that means he knows everything. And you can see in verse 12, his eyes, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, you could just, like, he has given you the evil, and it's not that. It's that, it's that he can pierce, he can see everything. When God judges, he's not going to judge, he's going to judge on our actions, but he can also know our attitudes, our heart, our motivation. He knows all of that. He, he's all-knowing. You're not going to hide anything from him. I mentioned that I was reading Jeremiah. My wife and I were talking about this on the way in. Uh, it was one of my favorite places in Jeremiah this morning, and I was reading the two chapters. And um, it just, I, it always amazes me every time I come to this place in the story. Uh, Israel has been, uh, has been taken off into captivity, into Babylon, and uh, there's a little bit of a remnant there, and uh, Jeremiah is, re- is released from his dungeon, and the people that are left, a very, very small group of people, they come to Jeremiah and they say, inquire of the Lord for us what he would have us do, and, uh, and we'll do it, and, and they kind of make this agreement, you know, don't just say this, like if you're going to say, well, I'm going to do it, I'm going to go find out, and you're going to do it, then then if you don't do it, then everything of this and more will come. No, no, we'll do what God's. We'll just tell us what he wants us to do, Jeremiah. So Jeremiah goes on a 10-day prayer retreat. And he comes back and he said, the Lord has spoken. And you just stay here in the land and he's going he's to take care of you and he's going to watch over you and the Chaldeans aren't going to come and get you. Just don't go to Egypt. So man, that's a pretty good word from the Lord. Pretty easy. It was awesome. Very next chapter. He didn't say that. That's not what God said. We're going to Egypt. You just go, what in the world? How can this be? And, and I've had my students go, this doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense because we're just reading the words. But when God judges, he knows the heart. Folks, some of us try to keep our nose pretty clean. We want to look pretty good on Sunday. We want people to say, I think they got their act together. And I just want you to know that when you stand before the King of Kings, everything will be revealed. Because he knows everything. He's the ruler of all, verse 12. Uh, He has this uh, crown on here. And on his head are many diadems, and, and, and his name written that no one knows by himself. So he's got this, this is, uh, some commentator says, less like the crown that you're thinking of, gold crown with things sticking up, more of almost like a cloth piece that would go across your foreheads with jewels all in it. And there was a couple different uh, meanings of the jewels, but what made the most sense to me, and you can just picture this for a moment, you're driving down Interstate 5. And there's a great big RV in front of you. And they have one of those maps of the United States on the back of it. Have you guys ever seen this? And then several of the states are colored in. What does that mean? They've been there. The diadems represent all the people groups that the king of kings rules over. There's a lot of them. Oh, I rule over that group. I'm king of that group. I'm king of that tribe. 
I'm ruler over here. He's the king of kings. There's also in, in Revelation a victor crown, but this is clearly most commentators would agree with this is the other type of crown. And it's contrasted, which we don't have time to go back and look at, the false crown that the Antichrist wore. So he's ruler of all. Next, he's transcendent. Oh, Pastor Dave, why are you using big words? He is above all. Here's the thing about God. He is, he is above all, he is over all, and yet he's present. Both are true in Scripture. And so he's pictured here of being something that we don't know. I love this. It says, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head is many diadems, and he has a name written that nobody knows. And the next verse, he's called the Word of God, and later on, he's called the King of Kings. And so, I'm just kind of a simple person sometimes. And it says here that he has a name written that nobody knows. And yet, every commentary I read had several pages telling me what they thought that name was. I'm just going to go with I don't know. There's things about God you are not going to know. He's above you. There's things about God you just can't get. And you know what? If you can, if you can get it all, then he's not God. He's transcendent. Now, verse 13, we have this picture of his blood. Sorry, there's transcendent for those of you who go, how do you spell transcendent? He's our atoning sacrifice. Now, there's some debate here about what this blood is on his robe. Um, and I, to me, it's pretty clear, but, uh, but know that other people disagree with this. Um, it's on there before the battle. So I'm not saying this is battle blood. This is blood that was there before. So that I believe this is the blood of the cross. He's our atoning sacrifice. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it's just, you don't, uh, those of us behind Jesus are dressed in white. Um, one person said one time, it's like, you don't show up to fight a battle in white unless you're pretty confident you're not going to see much action, right? I mean, wow. White? Not, not a good look for battle. Um, but, but here, this is you know, very picturesque here of who we are being washed in the blood of the Lamb. And I think this is about who Christ is. He's our atoning sacrifice. And then in verse 13, he's described as the Word of God. Just pause for a moment. In these few verses, Jesus is described as faithful and true. Amen? He is righteous in all of his judgments. Amen? At the end of judgment, you don't get to say, that's not fair. He is omniscient. He knows everything. Amen? He is the ruler of all. He is above us. Amen? He is our atoning sacrifice. He is the word of God. This isn't a picture of the glory of Christ, then I don't know what is. And you can you you have these two pictures that are being contrasted here. Do you want to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, 
or the marriage supper of the birds. Pretty different summons, isn't it? And what's seen as his actions, and just real quickly, he leads us into battle. And he strikes down the nations. There's quite a bit of debate on whether he strikes down the nations with a word or with actual swinging of the sword. I tend to lean towards it's just he just speaks it into action. He rules the nations. Right? He's put, he's, he's conquered the Antichrist and the two false, the, the anti-Trinity. He's conquered that and he is placed back in his rightful place as ruler of all the nations. And then, just so you know, I, I hope you pick up on the imagery here on verse 15. Uh, um, I think that's right. Is it verse 15? Uh, yeah. Uh, he treads the winepress of his fury. Okay? You've got to think very old school. I know you're Baptist and you don't drink wine. But, you know, when they, you've seen the pictures when they put all the grapes in the big barrels and the people get up and this is how Jesus is pictured going through the nations, just stomping, treading, pressing. He treads on the wicked. And then finally, it's seen in his judgment. There's a call to another banquet. And again, which banquet do you want to be at? The beast and the false prophets are captured. And I just, I, you know, I pick these themes and I, and I look at it and I study stuff and I'm reading different things. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do, I'm going to do, a sermon on the final battle. And I'm reading this, and I'm like, there's really not much of a battle here. I mean, and, and the great part, too, is there's this great, you know, make a great movie, because you kind of start at the end, and you kind of come back around. I mean, he's got all these different picture places and different places at the end. We're, at the beginning, we're celebrating the fall of Babylon. At the end, it's just like we're, we're just treading through this final battle. But as I read and studied this, What just kept coming to my mind is the glory of Jesus Christ. And so for us, as individuals, as a church, how do we apply this to our life? Let me just give you three things to think about this week. We give glory to God with our attitudes. Man, you know, uh, when we a fairly affluent and free nation. Man, we like to complain a lot. You know, I, uh, my wife and I were driving here this morning and I made my, my usual stop at Starbucks and there was a car pulling out of a big truck, beautiful truck. I coveted the truck a little bit beautiful truck pulling out of a a not glorious place in our town. And in my sinfulness, I said, why do the wicked have such nice trucks, God? And on his his bumper sticker, and don't amen this, so I'm I'm saying this negatively, so don't amen this. On the bumper sticker of his truck, he said, it said, my governor's an idiot. said, you know, sorry. That could be on the bumper of many people in my congregation's car. 
I've heard those words or similar from some of you. And when I read Revelation 19 and 18 and 19, our Babylon is a power. Our Babylon cares about money and wealth. Our Babylon is fine with trampling over the less fortunate and the outcast as long as we make a money. And don't ever give it glory. The only one that deserves a hallelujah is Jesus Christ. With our attitudes, we glorify God. We give God glory with our actions. Obviously, we are both putting on righteousness and we are given imputed righteousness from Christ. We are living in the Spirit, love, joy, peace, faithfulness for the glory of God. Our words are true for the glory of God. We love our enemy for the glory of God. We overlook offenses for the glory of God. We encourage one another for the glory of God. We celebrate one another for the glory of God. We come alongside one another and mourn together for the glory of God. With our actions, how we operate in the Spirit, we do for the glory of God. And finally, we give God glory with our adoration. May He and He alone get our worship for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, may Your Word, um, Your testimony be true in our lives. And God, I just I want to say to you this morning, um, in just my response to the sermon personally, forgive me for worshiping other things. Forgive me for falling in love with the world that I live in more than the, the king that I follow. Forgive me for loving the stuff of this world and wanting more of it. May we all keep our eyes focused on the marriage supper of the Lamb. May we prepare ourselves as a bride and be ready to greet the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.